Hi, I'm Amy Brenneman, and welcome to The Challengers, a podcast about seeing challenges in a new way, not as roadblocks, but as doorways that can lead to transformation. This week on the show, I'll be talking with two incredible women and dear friends of mine, Cynthia Griffiths and Dawn Hamilton, about a part of life that we all share, parenting a child with special needs. Cynthia, Dawn, and I got to know each other while our kids attended an incredible school here in Los Angeles called Chine Charter. This episode is incredibly touching and profound. In part one, we talk about both Cynthia and Dawn's traumatic birth stories beat by beat and how even the slightest things can change the course of your entire life. Let's listen. So I was thinking as I was driving over here, I know you guys very, very well. You are probably my closest support system because having a daughter with special needs is of all the things we've talked about so far in the podcast that I could relate to illness and 12 step in this. It's probably the most profound way that I entered a club I never thought I'd be in, didn't really want to be in and took a long time to get used to being in. And now I am happily there. I will never not be there. I will never solve my problems. My, my daughter's chromosomal abnormality, it's not one of those things like, we'll get into that kind of mentality. With enough intervention, I can rejoin the non-disability world. That will never happen. And now I am comfortable. And the older she gets, she's 17, the older I get, the more comfortable I am. But it's been quite a long journey for me and you guys have witnessed so much of it. So maybe Cynthia, just start with what your life was before mothering, what it was like when you had your son Cole. And I mean, prior to Cole, it, I was on a career path in international film distribution. I was running a company um, kind of at the point where my career was really about to ebb and happily married. We traveled. We had a lot of independence. I was out of the country a lot and it was really kind of idyllic in a lot of ways. My pregnancy was amazing. I loved every second of it. Turned out post-birth, I learned that during the last two weeks, we'd been exposed to the parvovirus, which for children, it's kind of a cold, looks like a virus, but for babies in utero, it's dangerous. You'll notice sometimes as a parent, when you go to preschools, they have signs that someone might have fifth disease, which is what it is. And I'd never heard of it, but we were exposed to it and it caused a lot of trauma to Cole in utero. He, he retained about a pound and a half of water weights. And so his birth was really traumatic and he was basically born not breathing for the first 12 minutes of his life. Um, it wasn't considered an emergency C-section because I chose to do it and it should have been. So there he didn't have any interventions until about eight minutes in. The first couple days of his life were like, if he's around the next hour, we'll do this. And if he's here tomorrow, we'll do this. And then after a few days in the NICU one day, they were like, next week. And it was like, he's going to have a next week? Oh, my God. <laughs> So it was just like those moments and he was hooked up to a million different tubes and he's still fed by a G-tube 17 years later. He never learned to to um, pull food or water back. So 
it was really the most unexpected, like, cause my pregnancy had been so great. And, um, so it was just this like shock and you just kind of, I mean, we were living for those moments of someone saying tomorrow, next week, he'll go home. We were there for five weeks and he came home and it was like, they let us start within the first few days. They let us start like changing his diaper, which was, he was literally hooked to about 20 different tubes. So it was crazy, but we got to do it. We were felt empowered. We got to be his parents and we just kind of jumped in and it was like, okay, let's do this. So I never, uh, knew this story actually. Yeah. Oh my God. I just love you. And I love Cole so much that it's amazing to. Well, and he was like the giant baby in the NICU because he was nine and a half pounds. He was a very healthy boy. And there are like Chuck Norris's twins were there and they were like two pounds each. <laughs> so like all the nurses wanted to hold Cole because he was this chubby, cuddly thing. And so, yeah, it was a weird experience. So you, so what I had assumed was it was a, a birth canal situation, which it was not no. at all. So, so those two weeks, the two weeks before his birth, when you really, when you heard your, you didn't know, you didn't know. Oh no, know. we didn't you know didn't at know all. Anything. Okay. No, no, I was, so it wasn't I like just, for two weeks, you're like, okay, we no, might. No, no, I hadn't, I hadn't had any contractions. I went in for my checkup. And so he was born on September 20th. And on the 19th, my doctor's like, I think we'll check you in. You're, you know, he, cause the baby was huge. And he said, I think we're going to have to try and see if we can um, induce labor. So when I checked in that night to get to, they were going to you know, put some gel on my cervix and, and his heart rate was low. So the nurse called my doctor and he was like, oh, give her some apple juice. She'll be fine. It'll stimulate the baby. And so they did that and his heart rate continued to drop for several hours. Um, they put me on a glucose strip thinking that he kept suggesting he was out to dinner. So he finally came at a little, like around 1130 that night. And he said, well, we can wait until morning and see, or if you want, you could, we could do a C-section and you could have the baby. And I was like, at that point, the nurse was freaked out. I was freaked out. And I'm like, yeah, let's do the C-section. Thanks. <laughs> so it so wasn't the nurse was freaked out. Like, why is his heart yeah, low? Well, she yeah. thought something was wrong the first time she called him. Mm. And so he, you know, he, he was blue when he was born and. And it, we like my husband can, saw the like the NICU doctor like halfway in, halfway after, like after Cole was born, he's like standing and he's like, You need me? And they're like, Yeah. And so it was like eight minutes by the time he was in there when he should have been there from the beginning. It, it, it could have had an impact. So those eight minutes were like, So that, yeah, because yeah. total 12. I mean, it's kind of weird to think he was really like essentially dead for 12 minutes before he started his life. Wow. I had no idea. Um, Don, how about you? What's your birth story? Oh, boy. Well, and a little background, which I think is important. I was 35. I had a full career, got married, bought a house, you know, did all the perfect planning and prep work for having a perfect child. <laughs> Same. <laughs> was, was off, you know, during my pregnancy, I ate all the right things. I took all the right vitamins. I, anytime my doctor told me to do something, I did it. I trusted her explicitly, um, you know, and was setting myself up for, you know, perfection. Of course. <laughs> Nothing less. <laughs> um, so about four days before her due date, um, my water broke but there was meconium in my water. So it was, you know, kind of this pea soup 
looking liquid. And that was the one thing that in my birth classes, my pre-birth classes, because I did all the classes, <laughs> they said, if that happens, you want to go into the hospital immediately. So I did. Well, we got there and they said, well, it's not really that big a deal. And um, I wasn't um, dilated at all. So they were going to induce me and start that whole process or whatever. And, you know, they're pretty much like, yeah, you're here. Let's let's get going. But they weren't worried about the meconium. So I was like, okay. Um, so they went through kind of this whole induction thing and I just wasn't progressing. So, I mean, it took, you know, this was going on for 26 hours or so. And then finally, by about the 27th hour, um, I started progressing, but it was right when the nurses were switching, um, shifts. And so there was like a transition of that. And once I had progressed to a certain dilation, they wanted, um, to do a different kind of procedure where they would actually like flesh the meconium out. And it was like, essentially like we're on our way now. Well, when they did this and it was a, a brand new nurse that had only been on for, you know, a few minutes and she did this procedure and something happened and it just like, um, the baby crashed and she was frantic and zooming around and I was cracking jokes cause I still didn't get the magnitude of the situation. And she was pushing buttons and people weren't coming and they were like, the do a doctor comes in, not mine who wasn't there. It was a Saturday morning and said, yeah, we need to get this baby out now because essentially she had crashed. They didn't have a heart rate. They didn't really know what was going on. So um, they called my doctor. She lives close to the hospital. She came, but they were prepping me for surgery and um, they took me in for a crash C-section. So it all went down really quickly. So it was um, an, another doctor who was there and my doctor kind of came in at the very last second as they were getting ready to cut me open. And um, I had a very, I was just thinking about this. I had a very Grey's Anatomy kind of moment because I, they didn't have time to put me out. So I was wide awake. Me too. And the doctors, as they were doing this, I was like laying on this table thinking, I'm going to die. My baby's going to die. And these doctors are talking about their sprinkler systems. And the guy's like, yeah, my sprinkler system's not working. And they're cutting me open. And it, it, it's such a poignant moment in the, the whole birth because I'm, you know, laying on this cold table and they're talking about their sprinkler systems. And it's just like another day to them. Um, but I also, what was really poignant about her birth is I shut down. So my eyes were closed. I couldn't, I couldn't physically open my eyes. Um, and I couldn't speak. I heard everything and I knew what was going on, but I just went to this internal place where, and the, the anesthesiologist sat above my head and people kept talking to me and asking me, are you okay? And I couldn't respond. I could hear the questions. I couldn't respond. And the anesthesiologist kept answering for me. She's okay. She's okay. And I remember them pulling her out. You can feel everything come out of your body when they pull a baby out of you from a C-section. And there was no sound. And they instantly started working on her. And they were doing that for a while. And nothing. So there's no crying, no sound. And eventually they said, okay, we got to take her out of here and, and work on her further. And my husband, who was in the room with us, he came over and they said, do you want to go with the baby? Do you want to stay with her? And he came and he said, what do I do? And I said, go, go with her. And so essentially it took them many minutes, four attempts to intubate her and resuscitate her and bring her back to life, similar yeah. to Cole. It's funny because I had the opposite. You were, you were kind of put yourself into a quiet place. Yeah. I was laying there and they had, were taking him out and I couldn't hear him. There was no sound obviously. And I started 
saying, why is my baby crying? Why is my baby crying? Why is and I got a shot of morphine to shot me up before they took him. And same, I had, it was almost the same with like, like they, my husband had to choose whether to stay with me or with, to go with Cole. And it is, it is very perfunctory in terms of the doctors, like not kind of recognizing because it's such a, a transformative moment in your life. And then to them, it's just like, yeah, it's another day. I just want to thank my friends again for being so open and honest with me and all of us. Moving forward in today's conversation, we're going to be talking about what happened in the days and weeks following the birth of Cole and Emmy, the ups and downs, and how finding even the smallest community gave them hope for the future. Thanks for listening. So you're in there, you're in survival mode, literally and emotionally, right? And then at what point did somebody say, okay, with this length of oxygen deprivation or these, these amount of minutes, this might happen? Or was it like unknown, mysterious, let's just keep him alive? Let's. Well, I mean, that, that was the challenge was to keep him alive at first. I mean, he was, they, we were told imme almost immediately that he would, you know, have most likely that his diagnosis would be cerebral palsy, which is sort of a catch-all for a lot of brain injury. Um, but we were basically told to expect that he would never walk and he, um, you know, they couldn't really predict what his quality of life would be. And this was like within days or a week? Probably within or, a week right. when they kind of realized that he actually he was, was going to survive. Right. So the doctors don't necessarily give you like the greatest prognosis on things because – you know, he's he's kind of exceeded anything, anyone, any kind of expectation that we were told to have for him. He did kind of walk with help for a long time. He's had a couple hip surgeries, which made weight bearing a lot more difficult for him as a teenager. But um, but he's a super active kid. And he's, you know, I think once we knew he was coming home, our biggest fear was like, would he have friends? And he does. So you know, he, his, his life is a lot different than most kids, but he leads a really rich life. And that's been our goal from that second, like every day, just to make sure that he's okay. And what about, was it similar with you or? It was actually totally the opposite. I think that, um, I've heard that a lot from other parents of kids with CP that the doctor. And that's Emmy's diagnosis again, catch cerebral all. Cerebral palsy. Right. Mm -hmm, brain injury from going without oxygen. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's more typical for the doctors to be very negative and, and give the worst prognosis and outcome and, you know, which dashes all your hopes and, you know, scares you to death and all that stuff. Um, for us, they were very vague and they wouldn't diagnose and they wouldn't say what the outcome was going to be. And they were just very vague about everything. And we always kind of think that that goes back to, they were protecting the possibility that there was any kind of medical negligence. Mm. So um, the hospital, the doctors, everyone was just always very vague about everything. And and I would at, I would go home once I got out of the hospital, you know. I mean, that's the other weird thing when you have a kid with an, a brain injury like this and they stay in the NICU and you go home a few days later. And so then, you know, you're not supposed to go home without your baby. And, you know, you're, weird, going, yeah. you're going back and forth. And um, but so I would go home at night and just research, you know, just looking for answers and 
you know, you get the information you do get is so confusing. And they always say, well, you know, let us know what questions you have. But when you don't know anything about something, you don't have any questions because you don't know what questions to ask. So it's like a brave new world. And I had never heard of anything like this happening. I really didn't know what cerebral palsy was, not even that I knew at that time that's what she was going to have. But as I was looking and researching, that's what kept coming up. And um, so I would research and do all this Googling. I mean, thank God for the internet and Google and all of the stuff that all the resources we have now as parents who encountered this kind of challenge because, you know, there was a time when you didn't have those kind of resources. And so for me, searching for that information and that knowledge and connection to others and like, what's your story and what happened and what's the outcome? I mean, that that's what I was hungry for in the beginning. Did you, did either of you, because I think I was completely unprepared in some deep soul ways for having a kid that was different. Like, did you have any contacts, anybody to call, anybody? For for us, when people started hearing the situation, I had all these people, oh, that happened to me and my kid is fine. I fucking hate that. <laughs> I fucking hate that. I so hate nobody it. really took you seriously. And I, I know. and I knew that that wasn't us because I knew it was a much bigger deal what happened to us. But everyone was like, oh, yeah, his head's a little misshapen, but he's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no. <laughs> So there wasn't anybody – so you found your your initial community online. And, and Yeah. I mean, one of the first families that I found actually we're still friends with and their kid goes to Chime. He's two years older than Emmy. But, you know, in my research, one of the very first things that we knew meant she, you know, was going to have issues is she couldn't nurse. She couldn't swallow. She couldn't suck. She didn't have those normal reflexes. And I started researching about that. Um, you know, and when you when your baby is born, that's the only thing they're supposed to do is eat. And she couldn't do that. So I was like hungry to figure out how can we get her to eat. And they kept telling us, you'll get out of the she'll get out of the NICU and can go home when she can eat and and we're gonna get her eating, you know. And so I was researching, researching, and I kept uh I stumbled upon this uh it's called Vital Stem, where it's they use like an e-stem. Um, kind of thing on the neck. And they, I had found some research where they had started using it in babies and pediatric population. Um, so in, in searching for that, I stumbled across a blog for someone who had been, had, had a, a son with CP who was uting, utilizing vital stem. Well, as I'm reading this blog, I realized they're in Los Angeles. Mm. And so I sent her an email and they seemed just kind of like normal people like us, you know what I mean? They were young. They, they seemed like our age and just the way she wrote her blog, I was like, we could be friends, you know? Mm. <laughs> so I emailed her and um, and she was like, yeah, let's meet up. Emerson was still in the NICU. She was probably two weeks old. And uh, my husband, Adam, and I went and met with her and her husband. Mm. And their son at this time was two years old. And we had coffee at a coffee shop in Silver Lake. They lived in Silver Lake. And they were like our age and they were, they, they were laughing. They were smiling. We were in this weird like alternate universe where nothing felt real. And you're waiting to wake up and everything's glossy and glassy and weird and, you know. And we met them and they were just they, – they were laughing and cracking jokes and cracking jokes about their situation and, you know, just everything. And we we were we were just like, whoa, okay, maybe it is going to be okay because look at them. They're okay. Mm. And – and yeah, so we're still friends to this day, but that was that was really monumental for us in knowing there are other people out there that are dealing with this and that they seemed okay and maybe we could be okay too. 
stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to drop in real quick to tell you about the Challengers Facebook group, a meeting place for us to discuss each episode of the podcast and support one another as we explore these sensitive topics. You'll also find exclusive content and more. A link to the Facebook group can be found in the show notes of this episode. I hope you'll join me in continuing the conversation. At this point in the conversation, I talk about my daughter, Charlotte, and a very different kind of story about discovering a disability. Later, we also talk about how the landscape has changed for individuals with disabilities and how people, organizations, and leaders are becoming more inclusive. Stay with us. All right, I'll, so Charlotte, my daughter, um, same, you know, like, okay, I'm going to have this perfect baby. And I was on a TV show and everything. And she was born and everything was, well, Charlotte has many, uh, several things that are very rare. And the first thing she came out and she had this endocrine disorder. Brad and I are recessive carriers of this thing. It is very treatable, but it was the first, like, what the fuck? Like, I, wait, what? We didn't My even. My baby's not perfect? Baby's not perfect. And it was sort of like the out of control feeling. It's like, well, I did prenatal testing. It's like, yeah, but this is relatively rare. But it was a little bit of a starter course in what you guys went through because it was treatable. It's not fatal, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, weird, but okay. She was a pretty fussy baby. I was a very anxious mother. <laughs> I was working a lot. I loved her dearly, but it was all very um, exhausting and overwhelming. And then when she was two, like she was not talking. And then I remember being at the park and seeing other two-year-olds climb up a ladder. And Charlotte would, I could tell she didn't know where her foot was in space. Like I just could tell, like something is off. So we got her into speech. She's always been very close to her autistic peers in terms of her symptoms, but not quite. She's a little bit more emotionally, it's just different. She is not autistic. So for me, it's like, it's interesting, Sin, because I feel like with what I loved about what you just said with Cole, it's like just the fact that he survived. You could have gratitude for it because you got so close to him not surviving. With Char, it was like this process of, and she has, you know, what in the business they would call an invisible disability, right? Your children, it's visible. My child, it's invisible. So we did everything right. We'd pull, and then I was, okay, do everything right when she's three, get her the IEP and get her. And it helped, totally helped. Like, of course you have to do all that. Um, and then when she was um, 15, she, there's this something called microarray genetic testing, which is basically blood work. But now with the genome project, you just get even more in specific. So she has something called Phelan McDermott syndrome, which is a chromosomal abnormality at the end of her 22nd chromosome. And there's 1400 people like her in the entire world. And when we got that diagnosis, it was actually a big exhale. It had a name. It had a name. And circling back to your experience, I mean, I'll, ne I'll never forget. I was like in a coffee shop in Topanga Canyon. We were going to talk to the neurologist and I literally expected nothing because nothing. And I was just like, 
she's like, found something. I was like, what? So in the hour before we talked to her, I went online and most folks with this syndrome are much lower functioning than her. You know, like Charlotte's always had language disorder, but they're like many Phelan McDermott folks don't speak at all. I can't, so it's like, oh, I've been in glass half empty. And like, there is literally sort of like with what you guys had, there was oxygen deprivation. They changed their brain. Like Charlotte has something different in her brain. Like, and, and it allowed me to accept it and express it differently. And, you know, say to her brother, like we've always said her brain is different. It actually really is different. You know what I mean? And, um, I have a little stand-up routine. I, I, I want to do like a thing of like, you know, different spe- kinds of special needs mom, you know, and it's like the, the mom of the Down syndrome kid. It's like, they're just filled with joy. You know, just all of these sort of cliches of, because I always felt like I'm the special needs mom. It's like, get your shit together. <laughs> like I am, it's taken me so long to sort of, and now Charlotte and I are in a really good place, but I also give myself a break because I come from like Harvard law school people. I had no, and I was really kind, open. I actually, I didn't have any judgment. I just didn't have exposure. And the currency in my family was intellectual prowess. There's just no other way to say it, you know? And they, my parents are, and Interestingly, as my father got sober and more multidimensional, and he's such an empath, I would not say that at the end of his life at all. But, and I didn't live in, it wasn't like great Santini, like, you know, read the New York Times, but pretty bantery, pretty up there, not athletic, you know what I mean? Not like the, like the currency in my family, it's not like be perfect and, you know, not supermodel. My mother doesn't wear makeup and beauty wasn't part of it, but it was brain. So for me to have a kid with an intellectual disability, was really hard for all of us. And it was hard for me. But when I, when I go like, oh, well, no wonder it would be hard for you. You know, yeah. um, you, it sounds like you had some experiences where you, you had a, could get your head around it a little bit or, or like well, I've I seen people. One of my father's cousins, she must be in, we've lost touch with them, but she must be in like her late sixties now. She, um, well, I guess when, at the time she was, her diagnosis, I guess, was mongoloidism, which is not a term anymore. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, she was essentially what, I mean, her parents would just call, called her mentally retarded. But I think she probably had a mild form of CP in retrospect. I mean, I was a lot younger than her, so it didn't, you know, we didn't connect in that way. But I was exposed to her and her, she did a lot of things for someone who's, who really kind of never got past nine in, mm. you know, intellectually. Um, she created the tennis program for Special Olympics because she had a crush on Elena Stasi. <laughs> she was an avid horseback rider, and you know she she lived a fairly in, nor- I mean, for lack of better term, and fairly normal life. And so I saw that. I mean, I grew up with that, knowing mm-hmm. that like, okay, she's different, but like she's doing all the same stuff I do as a kid. So like I was that didn't scare me, and then having the exposure with the Special Olympics also just for all different kinds of people with challenges was good. But I think I have a practicality to me. If you can tell me how to do something, like I, we were, I was really like, Cole came home at five weeks and we had a, a friend of my husband's wife who I wasn't particularly close to at the time, but she worked at Children's Hospital as a, a pediatric PT. And like I, we were literally home for two days when there was this knock at the door and Lola showed up with a beanbag chair and mm. a binder with like tons of um, 
sleeves in it with different exercises and stuff. And she said, here's what you're going to do with mm-hmm. him. Like she heard from her husband and like that was, and I was like, okay, so like there's things I can do that are going to help him and mm-hmm. that are going to, and it was just like, it was the same when we were in the hospital, like, okay, here, you're going to change him. And it's like, it's, if I can be doing things and that are learning and, and creating that situation. And I'm still like that with him to like, oh, your wheelchair's broken I'll figure it out. Like I just, I'm the practical person in me needs that. Yeah. And, it, and, and that's what kind of drove me forward a lot. We didn't like when Cole was born, cause you, it was like 10 years prior before Emerson almost like there wasn't as much accessibility on the internet at, in the early mm. years. Mm. So it was like, I kind of envy cause you've had so many, you have so many networks that, that have been a support, which was lacking in, in mm. my early years. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until we started Chime and I started meeting people who, who had special needs kids and then some who didn't. And like, those are people like yourself that mm. I've carried through, you know, the last 12 years. So. For life. Yeah. What about you? Is there anything in your background, no, family? I'm, mine was distinctly the opposite of Cynthia and that I had, I didn't know any anybody with disabilities, um, didn't have much exposure. I mean, my exposure was in school, you know, the segregated class, and sometimes you'd see them in the hall or the, the door bus. would be open yeah. and you, the yeah. short bus. Looked really I, scary in there. It looked <laughs> really know. scary, and I didn't, you know, it was the ignorance factor. Yeah. And I remember this was kind of an aha moment when um, we were still in the NICU and the the physical therapist and the occupational therapist, you know, would come in and work with Emerson. And it was an occupational therapist. And, you know, the doctors and the nurses, everyone was being very vague. And, and I was like, give me a range, like, you know, best and worst case. And they wouldn't give me anything. And this occupational therapist was working with her. And she started telling me about, so when you get out of here, you're going to start working with the regional center and they're going to give you therapists and you're going to be in this. And I was like, regional center. And I'd never heard of such a, you know, I had no idea what that was. I have the video of her doing this and I look back at it sometimes and it was such a like pivotal moment. And so I went and I was like, okay, that's something I got to look up. So I look up regional center and then I was like, oh shit, that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be in that club. No. (laughs) And I remember going out of the hospital and my sister was there and I was walking out and I was, I was crying and I was sobbing. And I said to her, I don't want my kid to be in a wheelchair, slumped over, drooling on herself. And that's how ignorant I was as to what a disability meant. That's all I saw. And that's all I didn't want is that picture of, you know, what I saw behind a closed door when the door cracked open. You know, I knew nothing more. I ask forgiveness sometimes out loud, sometimes I'm to Charlotte all the time because it's like, I just didn't know, you yeah. know what I mean? And I mean, I will say this and I don't, I, I really got it <clears throat> with all of these conversations, but this, cause it's so personal to me, I always want to find the right language because it's not a, everything we said for a reason or a silver lining. It's like, fu- it's fucking hard. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. No, it's hard. And you know, just our friendship, it's leading me to the, I'm like, I'm interested in this community. I, I, I've never been interested in dominant culture. I've always been like with the gay tap dancers and not the football player. You know what I mean? Once I realized like, oh, the disability community is this, it's, it's, it's about inclusivity. And, you know, one thing we've talked about is 
you know, in terms of the American culture, I can't speak for other countries, but, you know, with the litany of, you know, a, a good, a good politician will reference gender, race, LGBTQ, immigrant, like literally Hillary Clinton was the first one to say anything disability. about disability. Mm -hmm. So then that, that yeah. interests me, you know, it activates me. It's like, oh my God, I'm totally interested in people that speak with different devices or, yeah. and I guess, I guess circling back to what you said, and I, I know, I know you and I know Emerson and I think I didn't know that how you physically appear is not indicative necessarily of what you're thinking about, who you are, you know, and we can like thank a Stephen Hawking for that, you know, he's the first guy, like he's totally drooling in a wheelchair, but look what he's thinking about, you know, we could only, and you know, with, with, um, kids at Chime or, or, you know, getting to know Cole really well, it's so clear to me, uh, it's all about getting a device to get inside out, right? Yeah. And so if your mouth doesn't work that way or if whatever, I feel that way about Charlotte. I mean, Charlotte's brain can be sort of scrambled what she says. You know, you become a detective with our kids. It's like, okay, what does she really mean? Or how can I, you know, once I didn't look at it as a tragedy, I got really interested. Next. We talk about something we're sometimes not supposed to talk about, grief. Sometimes it's just plain hard, parenting a child with a disability. Sometimes we just have to put on a happy face, even when we're struggling. Stick around. Um, I want to talk about because we've touched on like doing things, right? I want to talk about, you know, I think I emailed this like a moment for me. And again, this was before I got Charlotte's diagnosis. So I was a little bit still hanging on to if she gets enough fucking tutoring, she'll get a high school degree when she's 18. I mean, whatever that clinging to typical development. And then I got her a uh, neuropsych, which is a big, for those of you out there who don't know, it's sort of a big assessment. And they look at academic stuff, physical stuff, social, emotional, talk to teachers, talk to everything, and they put it all together. And, you know, at the end of of, of doing everything I was told to do anyway, um, I got this neuropsych that was pretty devastating. Like if Charlotte, you know, if things are, it's like zero to a hundred, like Charlotte was usually not even on the zero. Like if she got like 0.1, I'd be like, yay, <laughs> like we're... And I remember sitting on the swing in my house, outside my house, and just grieving in a different way, in a, in a, in a big way. And two things came out of that. Well, many things came out of that. One was um, there was a list of things that were wrong with her. And it was a mile long. I mean, it's like everything. She didn't not have, you know, it was like this, this, this. And I thought I'm going to one day make a piece of theater and dance in front of a scroll of her deficits. And I did. So that's my own survival storyteller thing. But I immediately reached out and I called my friend Alexa and she recommended, it actually brought me into awesome supports that are still Charlotte supports. But I had to, again, let go of the math. You know, if I eat prenatal vitamins, I'll have a perfect kid. If I do all this shit, 
it's not just the math you let go of though i mean if as as a parent and especially i think as a mother it's like the amount of grief that comes with having it's a, a kid who who requires so much different kind of attention and that has special needs it's like you can't talk about it very much because people think you're an asshole but like i mean you give up every dream you ever had like I have a kid who, like, he couldn't breastfeed. I had massive boobs then. I wanted him to. Um, <laughs> like, he, he's, you know, he's never been, he doesn't, he can't kiss. He tries, but he can't kiss my cheek. He can't wrap his arms around me. He's never said, I love you. He loves me, I know. But I'll never hear him say it. Um, all the things that you want to do as a mother that you dream of, that your whole pregnancy, you think of all the things you're going to do with your kid that you never get to do. It may seem trite compared to the life that they have, but there's like so much that you give up. I plan to go back to work in my former career after he was born and I couldn't. I mean, I could have, we could have tried to figure it out, but I couldn't, my heart wouldn't let me leave him. I, I needed to be there to facilitate all of his early intervention care and stuff. But I had to, I, I wasn't when I decided to go back to work because once he got into elementary school, he wanted to stay in aftercare and he was like gone all day. He like took every, he still holds on to every moment of independence that he can have. So he's happy at school and he stays, you know, in after programs and stuff. But to go back to work, I couldn't return to my career because I had been out of work for a couple of years and it's a kind of doggy dog business and like, well, you haven't been here for two years. Mm. So I, I went into a different aspect of it, but I had to start all over basically. And it's like giving that up. Like, it's just, there's so much that grief that comes with it that you actually can't really talk to a lot of people about because they don't want to hear it. And it's not that you want pity or you're interested in someone sympathizing, but it's just like, there's the realization of all the stuff you, that you miss as a mother that people with typical children have. And it's like you're not part of that club. Right. You're at a birthday party and all the kids are doing something and your kid is just sitting there in their chair and they're forgetting that they should be including your kid. And you're kind of the asshole mom if you say, hey, could you have your kid take my kid? Like, and it's like, you, I don't know, it's a very, it can be a very lonely place sometimes. But you got to be honest about it. That's what we do. You know, I do a lot of things that I do for Emerson. Yeah, me too. Because it'll be good for her. But I'm plastering on the fake smiley face and pretending like I'm having a good time when on the inside I'm dying. Right. Totally. You know, mm -hmm. holding back the tears. Well, and the, and we've talked about that. You're not quite there yet, but it's middle school, you know. I mean, I, I, it's hard because I feel like the – in middle school is hard for everybody. I mean, I have a neurotypical yeah. eighth grader and it's like you, because you start to. Don't you find now though, that with our kids being 17. It's better. Um, no, oh, like, like the <laughs> fact that they're, you know, all their friends are getting drivers that have driver's licenses well, and are investigating colleges and touring and doing all of that. But here's it's what I like, will say. Cause, cause Char Charlotte, what happened actually, and some of it was the beginning of that neuropsych thing. And then looking toward high school I think it became a stressor and a sad element for me and Charlotte to be around typical peers. And what she kept asking for in one way or another, what she would ask for, can I have a smaller classroom? Can I have this? Can I have that? So after Chime, the first thing she did was she went to something called the Riverview School, which is for kids like her. There aren't any typical people there. 
and she exhaled and I exhaled. And it's sort of like meeting, you know, when Emerson was two weeks old, meeting that couple because it's like, oh, we're going to actually let go of the typical timeline. So where she goes to high school now, it's similar to the Riverview thing. So a lot of her friends don't drive. A lot of her friends aren't going to go to college. And, you know, I feel sort of like a bad inclusive warrior, but for Charlotte and me, letting go, we don't have so many typical peers around on a daily basis anyway. Yeah. No, as Cole's gotten older, I think when he was younger, I don't think he ever identified himself with other kids with disabilities. I mean, he was best friends with, he had twins that he was friends with, but best friends with the typical sister and not really that friendly with the brother who was in a wheelchair. And for years it was like that. It was like, oh, that's Amelia's brother. Oh, that's, and, and her, and he thought the same of Cole, like that's Amelia's friend. And it wasn't until they got older, they were in middle school and they had a couple things in common and started doing a swim class together that the boys became friends mm-hmm. on their own. But as he's gotten older, he's now identifies more with people with disabilities and special needs. Like he's happier in high school. He attends a public high school and he's in two general ed classes. And then he spends the rest of his day in a, a special ed program. And he actually identifies so much more now with all of them. And he feels more comfortable and more relaxed and he doesn't have the same stressors. So he does a theater program, which as you know, he loves yep. and art. So he does those in typical and he's got some typical friends at the on the campus, but really he's now figured out who his peeps are. And that was a choice that he, he has really come same. to on his own. I'm already stressing about this because Emerson's in second grade and she's very much in that place where inclusion is the perfect place perfect. for her. And she mm-hmm. has oh, yeah. this awesome crew in her class this year. Yeah. I mean, it, she usually has like one or two friends this year. She has a crew and they're all so great with her and they come running. I mean, it's so cool to take her to school and these girls and boys come running Emerson and they're so excited and they want to push her and they want to be with her. But already even in second grade, there are little moments where I'm like, okay, when are they going to kind of leave her in the dust and move on? I don't think it'll happen. I mean, you know, having gone through the chime thing, like Cole and Char are the same age, it's really like seventh grade and, and or, you know, middle school somewhere. And what I, what helped me to take it out of the curse of like, you know, I hate people that don't understand special needs is uh, I think um, it might've been Aaron Studer, maybe Dean, the one, there's a wonderful principal at Charlotte's high school. It's affinity groups. Right. And I was like, oh my God, me in seventh grade, I, again, I was hanging out with like all the gay guys who didn't know they were gay yet doing Godspell. Right. If I had to sit with the football players, like, I guess I could do it. Not my people. So then I realized like, oh, in this thing, got to be so careful. I have to be careful of like, secretly, I want her to be with typical peers. Secretly, I don't really, you know, it's like, oh, no, no, no. She has special needs. She's always going to have a cognitive disability. Like, these are her people. We're now going to spend some time talking about the day-to-day, or as Dawn puts it, the sprint. Each day is different. Each day brings with it its own set of micro-challenges, but each day opens up brand new possibilities that, as little as they might be, can help give our kids the best life they can possibly have. Then closing out today's conversation, I read a piece that I wrote called Passing, about my own daughter's disability. With all that being said, please enjoy the last part of my conversation 
with Cynthia Griffiths and Don Hamilton. Let's talk about successes, like what, you know, day in the life, you know, when he's five, day in the life now, if things are different, if he or she, you're like day in the life stuff. Well, I think in the early years, there's, I think a lot of kids are parents with kids with disabilities talk about this, but the first three years really is this just like intense sprint of like, what can I do not to fix my kid? I knew that I was never going to fix my kid, but to help my kid, you know, be the best possible. And so you're just in this sprint of doing everything you possibly can, every therapy, every treatment, every doctor, every activity. And you really can run yourself ragged because it's it, you can't do enough. And if you, whatever you don't do, you think, oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough. But um, so in the early years, it's just, you're just racing around a therapist and you have therapists coming to you and doctor's appointments and this and that. We were driving every, you know, couple times a week to the Napa Center, which is over by LAX. So it's a, you know, it's a hall from the Valley and traveling. We've always traveled. We're going to Florida and Pittsburgh and Canada. Like we've traveled all over to do things. And I value all of those things and I wouldn't change it. And we still travel for things, but we're not in that sprint that we once were. Um, Kind of our aha moment for us, it was when Emerson was about three and we'd been doing all these things to help her physically. And um, we had started going to um, the Chime Infant Toddler Program. Actually, it was back up. It was kind of there. And there was a speech therapist who's been there forever, who's retiring. But she um, was working with Emerson. And Emerson was like 18 months old. And um, she had her in a swing. And Emerson was totally nonverbal, noncommunicative. I didn't really even know what was in there, you know. We were just focusing on all this physical stuff. But Emerson always loved movement. And she had her in this swing. And she would swing her, and Emerson loved it. And she would stop the swing, and she would say, if you want to swing some more, raise your hand. And, you know, I'm sitting there watching, and Emerson's just nothing. But she just waited, and she didn't say anything else. And she just waited. And sure enough, up comes Emerson's hand. And it took a while, you know? And she d- she kept doing that and Emerson kept doing it. And it was the very first moment that I realized mm. that she was in there and she understood her body was never going to work right. But what, what can we do with her brain to help mm. her come out of that body and to tap into, you know, what was ha- going on in there? Because she clearly understood. And so when she was about three, she started working with an amazing speech therapist who really understands complex kids. Allie Steers. Mm. And um, Allie from the get-go believed in her and had her spelling words when she was three years old, started using um, an AAC kind of communication thing with her. And I just really grabbed onto that. And that's when I knew, okay, here I have this kid who physically, her body's not going to work, but her brain's okay. And where her brain injury is, it fully is, you know, a motor the motor area of her brain. It's not her cognitive area. Same mm. with Cole. And mm. so I... Do so you know that you can... Mm. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Her, uh, mm. the area is called the basal ganglia and it's, it's motor. Tiny little, when you look at her brain on an MRI, it is just a tiny little pin dot of damage, but it's so perfectly located to just completely obliterate her motor ability. 
So I've really hung on to that, you know, that yeah. I just want to do everything I can to help her communicate and learn. And her brain is her best asset. So mm -hmm. how can I help her with that and give her the best quality of life by being able to God, that's so clear. It's also like where I went was, you know, in the sprint, which is such a well <clears throat> great description, they're like problems to be solved, you know, and projects. And where I went to is thinking about Emerson on a swing is just the joy. It's like she's a person who's deserves pleasure too. You know, it's like you work so hard. I mean, that's especially in the early intervention days. Mm -hmm. It's like that balance of like, it's like asking me to do calculus, which I can't actually do. You know, it's just like work, 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 which is so important. But then also that the moment it's like, oh, wow, you just need to watch TV. As they get older, I think there is that element of like, what's too much. Yeah. And Cole did one of the things I mentioned, he did hypotherapy for a long time. And when he was about nine years old, he it was in Park, And so it was about a 45 minute drive on a Saturday for him. And he would cry the whole time we're driving there. Once he got there, he would be okay. But I started to realize at that point, like, you don't actually want to be doing this anymore. And he, and, you know, he was like, no, he wanted to play baseball. Mm. And so you had to realize like, sometimes what you think you're doing for your child for their benefit is not necessarily so. He wanted to spend time with friends. Mm. He didn't always want to be doing that stuff. And that's just as important to them developing as some of the therapies. And at some point, they have to be one of the directors in the whole journey. Yeah. So, it, but it's again, a, that has to do with communication, right? Which yeah. is like, you know, and again, our, our kids are, have different capacities communication wise, although there are a lot of similarities too, you know, but I think until you can get this out, it's like the minute you can make contact, then it's like, oh my God, hi, of course yeah. I respect that point of view. But it's like, it's easy for us from on the outside to look at them as a lump of clay. And I mean, I remember my mother, you know, who struggled the most, even, I mean, it's her part of me. And now that she is encountering her decline and, and disability, it's just been kind of awesome and sad for her, but really interesting in terms of this whole conversation. But my, so my niece, Ava, who's amazing, who's six months younger than Charlotte. And I remember when the girls were like three or four and Ava literally was reading. She just was like, and my mom's like, well, they read to her every night, you know, and that's why she reads. And I just looked at her with tears in my eyes. I was like, I read to Charlotte every night. Yeah. Of course. I read to her every night. It's not an abacus, you know what I mean? And again, in Shara's situation, because it was invisible and, and emerging, um, we did feel like we were defending and confused. But but I think we all have shared that. It's like, do this therapy. And, they, you know, so-and-so did that therapy and they walked at eight. It's like, oh, my God, no, you do it because it's the right thing you do. But you don't know what the result will be. And you can't get mad at them or yourself if it doesn't, you know. We have a joke in one of my CP mom's Facebook groups. And there was the mom that came in and her kid was chi – her child was cured because she fed him blueberries and used essential oils. You know, there's always <laughs> that. There's always that mom that – that cures their child from these magic ingredients or they did just the right thing. And Right, exactly. Um, I recently came across a piece I wrote a while back and I wanted to read part of it here to kind of close out the episode. So this, this was a piece I wrote called Passing and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, sort of the beginning and the end actually. Um, passing. 
Light-skinned blacks did it in the segregated South. Pre-Stonewall gay men did it in marriages where they suffered. Hell, I did it too. In the dark ages of my family's dysfunction, when my father was still drinking and my brother dealing dope, and I didn't know any of that, I just knew that something was wrong. I passed as normal. No better, exceptional. It wasn't enough to blend in. I had to create a diversion with my specialness so that no one would look beyond my family's increasingly frayed curtain. We pass. We pass tests, we hope to fit in, blend in, not create a ruckus. But somewhere in us is a still small voice. Can't it be better than this? Can't I actually be myself? With all of this baggage, we greet our children. Some dealt with, most not, or rather we think we've dealt with it until we greet our children. Then the issues come roaring into the nursery and settle in next to the diaper genie. My issues are about hiding my flaws and distracting you with achievement. My daughter, who has taught me everything, has taught me about this too. She has helped to break the familial cycle of secrets and shame. She has bushwhacked into the brave new world of authenticity. She has taught me that life is more than passing. She has taught me there is no normal, that the guy we revere as the straight arrow quarterback is probably wearing women's underwear, or at the very least has a stutter. Charlotte does not see people in terms of their deficits. She doesn't care about cool behavior. She does care about warmth, play, and acceptance. My daughter has shown me again and again that it is because of the chinks in the armor of our perfectionism that new light can come in, the light of intimacy and help and love. I remember when you did that piece. I know. That's the first time I put like words to it. I love it. You guys are a huge part of it. I love you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having children us. too. Thanks for making me cry. My thanks to Cynthia and Dawn for joining me today. You could find Dawn's daughter, Emmy, on Instagram at Emmy is a star or on Facebook. Just search Emmy is a star. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Challengers with Amy Brenneman. That's me. You can keep in touch with me on socials at Amy Brenneman on Twitter and Instagram. And you can like my page on Facebook. Just search for Amy Brenneman. Last but not least, please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon for a brand new episode.